Welcome, welcome, welcome back to the Boxing One Podcast. It's your boy Jay Rich, aka John Richards, here with the homie C Labs, aka Chris Lassner. What's up, homeboy? Chilling, B. What's good with you? Hey, man, you know, just trying to enjoy this new weather we got going on here, grilling and all that good stuff, man. You know how I do on the grill. That's how I roll. But we're on episode number 58, bro. And because you're a Chiefs fan, I'm going to let you go ahead and tell the folks who we are dedicating this episode to. My man, Derek Thomas, even though if I'm going to be honest, like this is a retake of the start because I said Derek Brooks. But I did grow up a Derek Thomas fan. I grew up um, Christian Okoye fan. I became a Chiefs fan because of Joe Delaney. And if you know anything about the legacy of the Chiefs, um, you were saddened by the death of number 58, Derek Thomas. Not only was he a great player, but he was a great human. He was a menace on the football t- field, but a humanitarian off of it. And uh, we mourn his loss, too. So um, shout out to Derek Thomas, and I apologize that I called him Derek Brooks. So, Absolutely, man. The Chiefs always seem to have like one player that's just likable all around the league. Love Christian Okoye and definitely love DT, man. Um, sorry that he lost his life so soon, man. But this episode is committed to the one and only DT, a fierce competitor on the court. Speaking of fierce competitors, bro, we got to talk playoffs. We got to talk NBA playoffs. That's how we roll here. Christ sports culture through the lens of the gospel, right? So we got to start with the NBA playoffs. And here's the question we were kind of kicking around back and forth today, right? Because even though Kyrie is not playing, his presence kind of looms large in this question. Now, we have Brad Stevens, who is doing wizard-type stuff as a coach of a team who has lost two superstar players, right? And then we have LeBron doing LeBron things. Now, both of these folks thought they were going to have Kyrie to make a run with. So the question is, Chris, if we're sitting in the barbershop just chatting it up, man, just chopping it up, and I say this to you, man, who, which one of these guys between Stevens and LeBron has done more so far in the playoffs without Kyrie? By the narrowest of margins, LeBron. And you know what makes this hard to say? That inbound pass. Because mm, yeah. we are all chatting back and forth in a text group about the end, not tonight's game, but the game before tonight. Um, and Boston's on the road in Philadelphia. They come back and they get one last chance. <laughs> and they draw the most perfect inbounds play I've ever seen in my life. And throw like a Randy Moss type play where it goes over the far shoulder to Al Horford for the score and the win. And everybody, think about this, Jay Rich. In a league filled with superstars, in a playoff filled with superstars, a coach who never tries to make a name for himself or ever draws any attention to himself and looks like he's 24 is one of the storylines. How? Like, mm-hmm. he has done a phenomenal job. I think you and I both said, hey, he's right behind Pop now in the league as far as coaches goes, and there might be a drop after those two. With all that being said, LeBron in the first round did not have a single teammate score a 20-point game once. Not average 20. No one else scored 20. 
So LeBron hits the game five thing. These are shots, by the way, that in the last couple of years that Kyrie would have taken. Uh, or they wouldn't have needed game winners because Kyrie would have been on the team. So by the narrowest of margins, I got LeBron. What you got? Bruh, we're going to have to disagree on this one. And I'm, I'm going to give you my reasoning, okay? Let's think about this, okay? Because I, I'm going to be honest with you, bro. Remember we talked about this before, and I was like, man, if I am the Wizards or any other team in the 8-7 slot before the playoffs start, I'm going to try to play Boston. And you sent me a text back. You were like, don't underestimate the Brad Stevens factor. I'm like, is he is he going to put on a uniform? Is he suiting up? Because when I look at this roster on paper, I think the Wizards or any other lower seed can beat them because they're missing two of their legit stars, including Kyrie Irving. So in the this, first round, they were missing smart, too. So you could say three for the first half of the first round. So as much as LeBron himself carried the Cavs in the first round, at the very least, he had a Kevin Love who was capable of a 31-point game, which he did score 31 points recently, right? So my hat tip is going to go to the Wizard. I call him the Wizard because I was telling you this earlier. There's Pop, there's Stevens, and then there's this huge gulf between any other coach in the league. It's no contest, man. Brad Stevens has made me a believer in these first couple of rounds of the playoffs. They're on the verge of making it to the Eastern Conference Finals without two legit max contract players. Who else could do this? Who else in the league can right. do this? So I'm going to go argument with Stevens. Rozier came in, and I mean, this guy is scary Terry now. He got his own T-shirt. He got Drew Bledsoe wearing it on his Instagram page. Like, this guy's come in and picked up the slack. That, But that's good coaching. The ability to help others, as you know, Shaq and others call him on TNT, step up into the place of these superstars. That's what Pop did with Patty Mills and other guys when Tony Parker went down, right? He had these other players who were random players. Corey Joseph got paid because of his playoff performances after Tony Parker went down. So coaches who have that ability are special coaches. They aren't Ty Lue. <laughs> no, shade, <laughs> no shade to Ty Lue, but I'm just saying. I mean, I'm not going to be if – if I'm lining the coaches up and I'm picking them, he might be last in the draft. I'm just saying. That's all I'm saying. So we I got to – do that one episode. In the summertime, <laughs> mark that down. We're going to do a coach draft. Just a coach draft. That would be awesome, actually. If we go through all the coaches. I'm laughing so hard just seeing him wait. <laughs> I got this picture of him waiting in the green room thinking he's going in the first round. <laughs> he showed up in his nice suit, sitting in the green room with his folks, and nobody's calling his name. Why? The because... camera keeps panning to him like Aaron Rodgers. Oh, man. <laughs> I'm done. And oh, LeBron, LeBron at the crib like, you thought you was going to get picked? I'm the coach. But that's what I'm saying, man. So Brad Stevens has to be the guy for me. Like, if I'm saying who's done more without their star player in Kyrie, I'm actually throwing my man Hayward in there and saying, look at what Brad Stevens is working with. No shade to Rozier or Marcus Morris or Marcus Smart, any of the other guys that are stepping up. But hands down, it's the guy on the sideline drawing up those plays at the end of the game that just tear out the heart 
of 76ers and their fans, including the confetti guy. But technically, we still don't know who the Cavs have replaced Kyrie with. Like, there's no guarantee who their starting point guard is going to be going forward, right? Like, like literally, they have not replaced him yet. They've tried Derrick Rose. They've tried Scola. They've tried uh, George Hill. And who knows who's even going to start on a night-to-night basis with the roster that they have. So, like, literally, they have not replaced this man. And LeBron's still finding ways to mow through the Eastern Conference. So it's a coin flip. I mean, both of them have been great. Um, I don't know what this does for Kyrie's confidence, but uh, they've both been great in his absence. This is kind of the first year that the Eastern Conference playoffs have been more exciting than the Western Conference playoffs. Does that change next round? I don't know, man. We'll, we'll see what happens in these matchups. But, you know, obviously – Houston and Golden State is going to be huge, but I I like Cleveland Boston as a matchup. If that happens, I think that you see a wizard coach and a wizard basketball player, uh, notwithstanding Ty Lue and what he's doing on the sideline. <laughs> this is going to be a great, be a great series, man. I think it would be. And and he might be a better coach than I give him credit for, but it's some facial expressions, Jay Rich. It really is, man. Like he lost, man. <laughs> like he don't know what he's doing. It's it's kind of funny, man. But uh, shout out to Ty Lue for being a head coach, man. I, I definitely love minority coaches in the league. I just think with LeBron, there's very few coaches who can actually coach him. Um, and he may be in over his head. That's all. All right. Speaking of in over our heads. Oh, my goodness, bro. <laughs> Let's kind of pull back the curtain and talk about some of the things that we've talked about the past couple of days, which is going to be our next topic when we jump into the culture piece, right? So I think yesterday I may have texted you and the homie Jay Hart and said, hey, I just wrote two words, Childish Gambino. (laughs) And you were like, did he change his name again? I was like, have y'all seen the This Is America video? So over the weekend, he just decided, Donald Glover, a.k.a. Childish Gambino, decided to release a new single, This Is America, which was accompanied by a video. Uh, and he previewed the track on SNL. Obviously, doing it on SNL doesn't show you the visuals in the video. But when the video came out, man, I think they're at tens of millions of downloads or views at this point. Uh, it's such a disconcerting, uh, visceral, uh, visually disturbing, yet socially challenging piece. And I'm not sure if all of our listeners have have watched the video and we don't want to give away too much if they haven't. But as we watched this piece and as you and I kind of processed it, man, we were like, wow, there's a lot of pain in there, but there's a lot of truth in there. So, Silas, as you watched it or as you process having watched it, what were some of your initial thoughts and like where do, where do you think this piece can take us as a culture as Americans as we think through what America looks like um, in the 21st century and specifically in 2018. All right. So first, Jay Rich, what we're not about to do is act like we can't give no spoiler alerts for a video. This is not <laughs> Avengers. This is not it's Black Panther, Jay Rich. You know, they can watch YouTube right now and with any access they want to. So we're going to go ahead and spoil everything. We, we can agree on that? 
I'm just going for it. Let's go ahead and do it. All right, word. All right, then, boom. So for 15 years, I worked as a reporter, mostly sports, but I covered law, courts, government, cops, all the beats at some point. Essentially, what you are as a reporter is you're a mirror to your community. You hold it up and say, here's what your community looks like. Here's what the good in the community looks like. Here's what the bad in the community looks like. He holds up a mirror to America and says, hey, here's what you look like, by the way. And some of those views aren't good. And he juxtaposes these two things, the entire video, that uh, America is violent and America is vain. And you can't get away from how fast he goes back and forth. And then you send a text that says, this man is so layered. There's so much in the video. The fact that Trayvon's dad is in the video playing the guitar. The fact that the white horse comes in at the end, the rider on the white horse, like pictures of end times theology. Like there's so much going on. The Charleston nine that were in the church praying, the Trayvon Martin situation, the dancing, like it is such a picture of you're violent and you're vain. Not to say that there's not beauty in America, but there's also brokenness. And he held a mirror up to the brokenness and it was very hard to look at. You're right. Yeah, so many visuals. And I did recently find out that that wasn't Trayvon's dad, but it was a guy that looked like him, which probably was very intentional. The guy's actually a music artist, but he had the beard, ah. he, he had the bald head. I mean, it looked just like him. And I'm pretty sure that was intentional. School uniforms, you think about Ron Clark Academy in Atlanta that this has been celebrated in years past by taking these impoverished kids, giving them hope and doing a different type of pedagogical approach to education. Like they're dancing in the classroom. So very intentional about using the school uniforms with the kids dancing. In fact, my wife knows one of the kids, she's from LA and uh, she was part of one of his programs going up in in the church. So it was good to see him uh, in the video as well. But dude, so many layers. Like I've been reading a couple of blog posts and I'm like, I had never seen that. Uh, Jim Crow poses, the fact that he comes out looking like Frederick Douglass with his hair. Uh, so much going on in the video. And here's the thing, because he's front and center the entire time, you could possibly miss some of the stuff going on in the background. And I think he's saying that to America, like, hey, we do have this. And as you say, we have this kind of polarization between being violent and being vain, especially in the African-American community. Um, if, and to hear him say, get your money, black man, get your money. Um, it was something that was like, wow. And the chilling scene at the end with him running down the hallway saying, hey, even me as a black man who has made it, been worked on the community, uh, producing a TV show that is very popular, I'm still running for my life, was something that was like jaw dropping. I think the ending of the this video was actually more surprising to me than the Avengers movie that just came out. I mean, it was more jaw dropping to me. It gives you a lot to think about. Did I read correctly that he also self-directed it? Yeah, he, him and uh, Hiro Mara, who actually uh, directs a lot of his stuff on with ATL, the show. So they're kind of work together as producers on that show as well. So they have a 
definitely have an affinity for each other. And you can see a lot of elements of what they do in ATL in that video. I'm not hip on the ATL show. I haven't seen an episode yet. So. Gotta gotta watch the barbershop episode and the FUBU episode. I don't care if you don't watch any other episode on ATL. Those are two episodes that are classic 90s or black culture episodes for sure. All right, I'm going to get to them eventually, Jay Rich. You know I'm not a big TV guy. All right, quickly, we got to talk about Minio, okay? Andy Minio just came out with an EP uh, about a week and some change ago. Uh, the first of several EPs, and this has been the first time he's released music in a very long time. The EP is called The Arrow. The album artwork is amazing. And he just runs through, I think, five or six songs uh, that seems like a collective lament um, slash bout of uh, doubt uh, moving through what faith looks like, what fear looks like. And it's something that as you listen to it, you see a artist that a lot of people love. They love his lyricism. But I think in this particular EP, he is very transparent that a lot of Christians might not like that transparency, especially when he's on songs like Clarity or Family Photo, where he talks about his his dad missing his wedding. Um, those are things that kind of impact me because my dad uh, wasn't around for me either. So listening to that, bro, uh, just thinking through more and more Christian artists and even NBA players talking about depression and talking about these issues uh, more publicly, uh, do you think that albums like this are helpful or harmful for someone who may be a new believer, someone who may have just been coming to Christ? Whoa. So there's so much. And we already we already hit on the music piece. So I'm going to try to be brief in some of the answers. But man, um, I guess it just kind of depends on how you've been discipled. Right. And who's in because uh like we do hold to this view that God is big enough to, for us to bring every emotion to that. He's the God of all emotions. Uh, we also hold to the fact that like Christ is in the steering wheel and we don't get controlled by our emotions, but yet we still have them all. Right. Um, so I can see as a new believer, how some of that would be confusing, but if I've ever just had one thing with CHH that I say like, Oh, Chris, you get to pick one way that CHH improves. I'd say, oh, man, I just don't hear the artist hard enough. You know, um, I need more songs for every emotion I feel as a Christ follower. And some of those emotions sometimes are doubt. Um, God, why this season of life? Um, just recently coming out of one of those, you know. Um, but uh, I, I do like I'm thankful for the theology and everything I've learned in the CHH music through the theology and the music. I'm not saying replace that. I'm saying more broadly, we need to hear the heart of people. And we have a whole book in the Bible, Psalms. Um, they say the rest of the Bible speaks to you, but the Psalms speak for you. And so I need CHH to speak to me, but I also need at some point CHH to speak for me. Mm -hmm. And so I'm with the wide range of music. So I'm down. But if you're putting it in the context of new believer, yeah, you might caution them and say like, hey, this is somebody who's been walking with the Lord for a long time, just opening up, trying to provide healing for people who don't think it's OK to doubt or can't see through to the other side. So I like it. Yeah. And we can't really expect our preachers to preach the whole counsel of God and not expect our Christian artists to do the same in their music. 
Um, yeah, I like that answer. I mean, if we don't, if we expect that from our pastors, then we certainly should expect those that from those who are um, developing their art form in different forms of communication. So I'm looking forward to what he's going to do over the next several albums in this EP process as he works through some of the issues that he started talking about in the album. So, and we're probably going to do a dip, deeper dive at some point, man, but I just wanted to touch on that because it was something that was a recent drop, man. We haven't had anything drop recently besides Swoop and some minor, right? So it's good to see uh, Andy Menio step up and uh, drop an EP on us, man. It's been processing that for the past week and some change. Um, Speaking of Perry comes out this week, so I'm hyped. Oh, cannot wait, man. Cannot wait. Speaking of processing. Yeah, yo. So at the end, um, if, if people have noticed kind of the flow of the podcast, usually usually introduce the first two topics, but there's a lot of times where I'll introduce the third, and it's because I really do like to pick your brain, and I'm learning right along with the audience. I always appreciate these times, even for myself. Um, sometimes it's stuff that I have a better grasp on, and it's just therapeutic to hear, and sometimes it's just I'm learning right along with. But uh, you and I both saw earlier this week something that um, was deeply troubling, I would say. Uh, Beth Moore, um, who was a well-known just female Bible teacher in the Southern Baptist uh, tradition, um, very well-known, came out with a blog and just the blog was like, hey, here's a letter to my brothers. And it was painful to read as she says, here's how I've experienced misogyny. Um, Here's how I've been dealt with by brothers in Christ as I've sought to minister for the Lord in ways that I saw fit as a woman. And it was painful and it was hard to read. Right on the heels of that, Tabidi wrote a beautiful response letter, just apologizing to uh, Beth kind of saying like, hey, I might not have been directly responsible for slandering your name, but here's how I contributed to that. I thought both articles were um, worth processing deeply, not just giving a, a cursory glance to, but really just kind of examining my own heart, like processing it with brothers and saying like, hey, where have we missed it in how we treat our sisters in the body of Christ? And what does it look like to process this deeply and look at like what it might mean for us as Christ followers moving forward. So if I just toss you that, that's a long introduction, Jay Rich, but um, you've read the articles both. What do we do with it and how do we uh, how do we inspect how we've treated our sisters in the body moving forward? Yeah, and I, I mean, I have to echo your sentiments. I really appreciate the um, the ability of Beth Moore to actually speak against some of her core audience. I mean, she's not a woman's day speaker or a women's conference speaker. She is a well sought after speaker in various contexts, even complementarian quote unquote um, settings because she is a gifted communicator. So for her to actually speak up on this issue took a lot of heart and passion, desire. And Thabiti mentioned this in her article, like she's spoken up on race issues um, in the past, and we've been grateful for that. But to see her stand up for gender issues with women 
um, added another layer of respect for her. And then to see our brother Thabiti, man, he he always has this this way about being graceful in approaching topics like this. And this time we saw that he was apologetic and in a sense repentant because he saw Beth Moore as one of those um, persons who was outside of the bounds of what the Bible teaches instead of, in, in terms of teaching. So he apologized to her and I was grateful for that. So ultimately, man, this here's what the issue boils down to. A lot of Pauline text that are confusing <laughs> for a lot of people. Okay. Um, when you're talking Including about Peter, the apostle, exactly, exactly. When he's talking about women, uh, not speaking in church in first Corinthians, covering their head, um, throughout his letters, uh, there are misogynistic elements when taken out of context that will cause patriarchy to reign. Now, let me be clear. Okay. There's, Elements in the Bible that definitely are male centric, so to speak. You know, you go through um, some of the genealogies in the Old Testament. But here's the thing about grace. Right. And we mentioned this before in our podcast is like, hey, look at Matthew's genealogy. The fact that he includes women in the genealogy. Look at Luke's gospel. The fact that women and children are prominently featured in this gospel kind of shows that that God himself. Um, is not only interested in women and gender, uh, but also upholds biblical womanhood. And people disagree on what biblical womanhood is. And that's what it boils down to uh, when it comes to women preaching and teaching. So um, one of the things that I've done over the years, you know, I went to Fuller Seminary, which is not complementarian. You know, the mission of, of Fuller is to equip men and women for manifold ministry which basically means that men ain't the only ones called to preach. <laughs> so um, I would fall in the camp of uh, egalitarian in ministry, complementarian-ish at home. And let me just break that down just a tad bit, okay? So I would say that as, as a husband, as a father, I read the biblical mandate is for me to cover my family. Um, to be able to be the spiritual leader of my household. Um, outside of that, like I celebrate my wife and others who are called to speak and teach in public. Uh, and that is the conclusion I've come to through reading scripture and reading various resources from various authors on it, whether they be complementarian or egalitarian. And I think earlier this week, you did ask me for some resources on that. And I think it might be good to actually provide some. One of them is neither complementarian nor egalitarian, a kingdom corrective to evangelical gender debate. Now, this is a pretty good read on looking at both sides of the issue. Uh, the author is Michelle Lee Barnwell. And then the other one that I would commend is more like a layperson's read, but is actually good coming from somebody who is a wife of someone who is a leader of a complementarian movement. Uh, and that's from Kathy Keller called Jesus, Justice and Gender Roles, A Case for Gender Roles in Ministry. Uh, it's a short read, but Kathy talks about her own struggles with the complementarian ministry. Now, she comes to some conclusions about complementarianism that I might not necessarily agree with, but I think overall she handles it with a special measure of grace. So definitely would commend those two books 
this is a very exhaustive top topic, so I only touched on it briefly, but just wanted to share my personal perspective. Obviously, everyone can come to their own conclusions, but uh, this is an issue that's going to continue until Jesus comes back. But the beautiful thing about it is, is this is not an orthodoxy issue. It's not a black or white issue. It's something that is probably a second tier issue uh, that is not going to cause anyone to not be inheriting the kingdom of God. Jay Rich, uh, at the risk of making the podcast run two more minutes, uh, when I had a chance to hear Jamar speak when he came around my neck of the woods, one of the things he said about racism is you're not going to meet most people who just come out and say, I'm a racist. But what he said is they're kind of like that thing in the airport that just kind of moves you along the direction. Mm. Whether you uh, whether you kind of know you're on it or not, you're just moving, drifting in a direction, kind of like with the current. So what what do you what advice do you have quickly? Hey, like I've been careful to be a good brother in Christ to my sisters in Christ in the body of church. But I'm noticing as Tabidi's called me to do some of this heart work um, as Beth Morris called me to like there's places where I've drifted with the current and that current inside of the church sometimes has been misogynistic. Like what steps do we take to make sure we're not doing that? Or do we need to save that for another podcast? Well, just briefly, I think we may have talked about this before, but when we talked about the um, the ability to move outside of your comfort zone and move into someone else's space and just go listen. Like one of the reasons I went to Fuller is because I was a complementarian. I didn't even know what the term meant, but one of the reasons I went there was to experience uh, the kingdom of God from a perspective that might not have been my own, that could have challenged my own perspective. And guess what? I left there not a complimentarian when it came to preaching ministry. So uh, that's one of the things I would challenge people to do is actually listen to other folks, like go and listen to Beth Moore and then think through, wow, can God really use this person um, in my current theological view? And then what is wrong with that perspective? So, yeah, I would just say get outside of your comfort zone, outside of your camp and try to listen, listen well. Yeah, just closing that part, I would say I hope every sister in Christ I've ever had would be able to see like, hey, he valued me as a sister in Christ. I pray um, even as my wife points out things and says like, hey, it seems like you're being this here, that um, the, the overarching thing is, hey, like he's careful not to be misogynistic because Christ isn't misogynistic. Um, That's great. But as far as this issue, it is one that I've wrestled with and even reached out to you and say, hey, let me get the resources. It's time for me to do some deeper digging and really feel, uh, figure some of this stuff out. So I appreciate you there, bro. No worries, man. Speaking of resources, anything you've been listening to or reading lately that you think our listeners might want to get in on? Man, so me and my wife have doubled down to finish back on this series by Tabidi, the 117. We kind of forgot about it, what got busy with some other things, but just the biblical case for justice. And it's been challenging for me as a person who always wanted to lean towards mercy to see where I'm not in line with Christ if I'm not helping pursue justice. So that's been a great series that I've been listening to so i know my answers are to bd a lot but hey what can i say like it's just it is what it is bro ain't nothing wrong with that man good brother so i just started reading another book called blessed a history of the american prosperity gospel 
um, by Kate Bowler. It's actually on sale through the end of May on Kindle for $2.99, I believe. And I decided to check it out because I know about the current state of the prosperity gospel. I just want to see if someone else has a different strand than I've read about before in the book. Watch this, which is another book on the prosperity gospel. So love getting various takes on it. And it's interesting. She starts with a new age thinker who um, a lot of people think is the father of prosperity gospel white guy um, that a lot of people don't really talk about. So something I might probably write about pretty soon here one day after I finish reading this. So I would commend that to anyone who wants to understand the theology behind um, what has been called or come to be known as the prosperity gospel. All right, bro. Closing shout outs. What you got? Yeah, I got to give my shout out to my man, Danny, on my rec league basketball team, a good, a really good friend growing up. It's been great reconnecting as teammates on the adult rec league basketball team. And he told me not to call him cauliflower Danny on the podcast. But the thing is, Jay Rich, this is a true story. Yo. Whatever you about to cook, he know the best way to cook it. And so we just sit around after the games and we laugh <laughs> and laugh. But the thing is, he'd be right. And so when we go cook these things, like the way he said it, like, yo, that joint did come out banging. For example, when he said, when I told you I was trying the vegan challenge for a week, he was like, yo, you ever made cauliflower steaks? Like, it doesn't matter what it is. He can <laughs> lay out for you on the spot the best way to make any dish. And I don't know how he does it. But he is a funny dude, and he had us in stitches tonight. So shout out to my man, not Cauliflower Danny. Ain't nothing wrong with that, man. Hey, I'm going to give a shout out to – I gave a shout out to Big Scooter last week. I'm going to give a shout out to Savage Scooter this week, which is my son, who constantly reminds me with subtle jabs of how old I am. <laughs> Today, he asked me, hey, dad, do you have any hobbies? And I was like, sure, I got one hobby that I love doing the most. You know what that is? Thinking I'm going to give him a background of my basketball prominence in rec leagues. And he's like, um, napping or sleeping? I'm like, bro, <laughs> really? Savage. <laughs> That's my favorite hobby? So shout out to Savage Scooter, who just throws little barbs to help keep me humble. I think that's what it is. I think the Lord keeps me humble through my children for sure. And my wife. So shout out to Savage Scooter. Hey, soon we got to have our wives on the podcast. That's right. If y'all listening, you up. Y'all yeah, coming we up. We can't talk about sisters in Christ and not have our wives on. Can't do that, man. Can't do that. All right. That's been episode number 58 of the Boxing One Podcast. This has been your boy, Jay Rich, along with C-Lass. Hey, guys, we're going to see you guys next go around. But before then, make sure you go over to Twitter. Follow us at Boxing One Podcast on Facebook at Boxing One Podcast and check out our website, BoxingOnePodcast.com. Looking forward to you guys joining us next go around for episode number 59. Until then, grace and peace to you all.